Dotnet Rocks, episode 1026, with guest Daniel Peasens. Recorded Friday, August 22nd, 2014. Oh yeah, it's .NET Rocks all over again. What's up, my friend? Last week of summer, dude. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Kids going back to school. You still got one in school, too. Yeah, yeah. Well, I got I got one in college, one in school, and that's just my biological daughters, my bonus daughters. One's in college for second year. Right. Yeah. So. Yeah. And the other one is, didn't she just graduate? The other one's going to uh, uh, development, uh, software, getting into software development. No kidding. Just graduated high school. That's cool. Yeah. I figured yeah, one well, of both them. Both mine are in college. They went and de- did their own like school supply shopping. Like life's pretty easy, dude. Hey, did I tell you about the Kickstarter? You know, mu- what a, uh, music to code, music by. to code by. Yeah, yeah. It's this is the last day. Oh, right. Of course, so we're coming out out on the uh, August twenty sixth. That's right. And you end on the Wednesday on the twenty seventh. Turns out on the twenty first last week, uh, my wife put me over the top. And, you know, she does that all the time anyway, but she actually funded, she finished, you know, got me to my goal. Nice. So, I'm past the goal now, and uh, this is your last chance to get in on it. It's basically a a whole bunch of music set in Pomodoro increments that- Oh, really? Oh, yeah. That uh, you can use to focus on. That is so cool. There will be three Pomodoros of music in this album. (laughs) I love it. Music to code by. All right, man, let's uh, roll that funky music and get into a better note of framework. Awesome. All right, buddy, what do you got? Well, this came out of necessity, and it, it isn't a huge awesome thing, but it turns out that the solution is. Small awesome things are good, Small too. awesome things are good, <laughs> right? It's more about the application of the technology and the technology itself. But here, here you go. So doing this uh, Connect app... The Connect for Windows 2.0, when it saves frames, you know, when it gives you frames of color video uh, and you save them, they're mirrored, basically, because when you look at, you know, the screen, just like your your webcam, right, it mirrors it so that it's not weird for you when you're looking back at yourself, right? Right. So, but that's how those data, that's how that data is saved. It's mirrored. Mm-hmm. And so when you're if you're going back and saving those frames, maybe scrubbing through them to look at them, they're, they're backwards. You know, it's great when you're actually recording video to see a mirror image. But yeah. when you want to save it and pull it back up, you don't want it mirrored. You want to look at it as if somebody else is looking at you. Of course. Yeah. Now, the problem is, of course, 30 frames a second, that's a lot of data to flip very fast in memory. Right. Probably not a good option. Turns out there's an easy way in XAML, in WPF, just to flip the image as it's displayed on just right, in the so UI. Utilizing the GPU to flip the thing over on the fly. That's right. And it turns out it's just a couple of lines in XAML. And if you go to tinyurl.com slash WPF image flip, this is a Stack Overflow question that somebody asked. And uh, use it. basically the solution is to use a scale transform with a scale X of minus one for horizontal and scale Y of minus one for vertical. And uh, 
just another render transform origin um, attribute on the image itself, and then you do a, a transform inside the image. Nice. It's so easy. It it's like zero performance impact. So it's fast. It's It'll fast. keep up. That's that's what you want, yeah. right? And you don't. I love it when you only have to write a couple of lines of code, and it's fast. And here's the key part: that you're not actually flipping bits in real time when you're trying to be performant. You're not. You're not. No. It's good. In other words, you don't have to save the the image, you know, and flip the data in memory, you know, using, you know, using uh, WPF, which is expensive, using writable bitmaps, basically. Yeah. Okay. There you go. Love it. Love it. Know it, learn it, love it. Richard, who's talking to us? Grabbed a comment off of show 891, and that is the show we did a while back with Corey Fowler. We talked about continuous delivery on Azure. Yep. And... Bart, and Bart, I'm going to shred your last name. It's a good Dutch last name. Verhoeven? I'm going to go with that. Okay. I feel good about that. Uh, who has commented many times, and I believe has a full set of mugs to boot. So we'll have to do something nice for him. Yeah. Uh, Bart says, uh, great show, guys. Corey explains well how continuous delivery works in an enterprise setting with devs, tests, and QA environments. But I would like to add that we've been able to set up continuous delivery for Azure on a smaller scale, and it works great for our startup. Being both the programmer and the DevOps for the team, I found that hosted team foundation service to be a great tool for storing the repository, using it as a build server, automating deployments to Azure. We do this with both Azure websites and cloud service web roles. I'd prefer to use Git instead of TFS because of the ability for local commits, but this is not supported as of yet for cloud services. And I would point out this is about a year ago, and it is now supported. Hmm. Uh, but TFS is still a good choice. It's decent support for the whole tool chain and Visual Studio for TFS all the way to Azure. One challenge I bumped into with continuous delivery for Azure was the need to run tests after the build and only to deploy on success to multiple Azure cloud service web roles. Mm -hmm. The current build process scripts in Visual Studio 2012 do not support this scenario, and you need to come up with a hack to figure this out, mm. allowing to queue multiple builds. This is also tools like Octopus deploying things do this really well. Right. Uh, but in our case, we first build the project and run the test. And if that completes without errors, then we run a couple of build scripts to deploy to two different cloud services in different locations. And then finally, we need to flip a switch in Azure manually by doing a VIP swap. Which, you know, I know you'd like to have this automated part, but there is a point where a human needs to look and go, yeah, okay, right? Like right. there's still a sanity checkpoint. So I'm not so sure I'm unhappy with this, but it's interesting to see how far Bart was able to go a year ago. And when you look at this process today, it's impressive. Like it's getting simpler and simpler and simpler. So I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to our conversation today as well, just because, you know, continuous delivery is becoming less and less, uh, an aspirational or, you know, reaching for the stars kind of thing and becoming just a routine thing. Mm -hmm. So Bart, thanks so much for your comment. I know you got the mugs. If you want another one, you know, we'll talk an email. Uh, maybe we can get you a t-shirt or something or maybe a hoodie. And if you'd like a mug, write a comment on the website at .netrocks.com or on any of our mobile apps. We've got them for Android, Windows Phone 7 and 8, iOS and Windows 8. That's right. And now it's time to introduce Dan Peasons. Dan is a senior consultant for Centair, where he passionately advocates agile principles and infects his clients with wonderful new ideas. I like that. Infects his clients. Yeah. It's kind of a, kind of, it brings it home. 
Having 13 <laughs> years of experience in the software industry, Dan has architected world-class enterprise applications in the transportation, insurance, and healthcare industries. He's been a Microsoft Patterns and Practices champion since 2008 and an advisor on projects including Unity, Enterprise Library, Prism, Acceptance Testing, and CQRS. Dan is also a regular speaker, recently speaking at Agile 2014, That Conference, and Midwest User Groups. His current passion involves guidance for development teams on all things continuous and promoting best practices for the latest Microsoft Web and Azure technologies. When he's not geeking out, you can find him spending time with his wife and children or playing the piano. Welcome, Dan. Morning. Or, hi, guys. How's it going? Hi, how are you? Good. How are you? Awesome. So, uh, first of all, how long have you been playing the piano? Uh, since I was 12. It's, it's oh, that's long, awesome. Long road. I love love playing. I actually can play the pipe organ, too. So No kidding. Yeah, a little rusty at that. haven't done it in a long time because it's, it's really hard to get your hands on, on a full-size pipe organ on a regular basis. Now, you said you worked in the insurance industry. Were you in anywhere near Hartford, Connecticut? No. Insurance capital of the world? No, no. Um, mostly the insurance companies in the Milwaukee sector, a software as a service company that sells to uh, employee insurance brokers and then um, doing work for some insurance markets that deal directly with consumers. Can't, okay. can't say all the details, but they're both yeah, yeah. companies. Fair enough. I only asked you that because uh, I know a, a an amazing piano and pipe organist in the Hartford area who is the only person that I know who aced the Hart School of Music entrance exam. Oh wow! And that was back in the seventies. So that's impressive. Yeah, but I but a, a good pipe organ is is majestic and awesome. Oh yeah. The real question is, when you were twelve, were you excited to play the piano? Yeah, that's a good question. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's actually been in my my family for years. My my grandfather was a third generation pipe organ builder from Europe, so um, it it was kind of been in my blood for for a long time. So you know, my go to answer when when I'm sitting and playing, and somebody comes up to me and says, "How long have you been playing?" I say. Look at my watch and say, "Oh, about a half hour." <laughs> <laughs> Never gets old. Never gets All old. All right, where were we? So I'm just going to give you a meatball and and say, you know, continuous integration is a big uh, a big topic. What uh, what do you want to talk about today? Um, there's there's a whole lot of stuff in this space today, and I, I think the the idea of that and, and DevOps and all the principles are are great but they're getting really muddy in our space and especially i think the devops word is starting to become that excuse to sell you tools versus really coming up with the right practices so um I was, devops in a box exactly um so I've, I've been trying to shift away from the tools and and help people kind of understand the concepts and and what makes this work and then how to hopefully go about it the opposite way of making the tooling support the process that you'd like to do in the end versus the other way around because in the end, we do love tools, and they're sort of easier to deal with than cultural changes and process changes. Oh, yeah. The, the, the tools are often the easy part. It's, it's getting the process and getting the people to think about it and work together, because I think everybody makes the assumption that either development or operations can handle all of this, and the reality is, is that neither side has the full picture. And I've also seen, like, there's clearly... Uh, you could have developer-initiated DevOps and operations-initiated DevOps. Oh, yeah. 
what do you usually run into? Um, usually it's developer initiated DevOps, um, just based on where our organization sits and the kinds of people we interact with. We're often starting with development teams for agility transformations and then working into operations. But mm-hmm. every once in a while, you end up operations first, which is is interesting, but they're kind of rare because they're the few people that recognize that we can't set things up manually forever and get the consistency we want. Right. Um, how hard are the conversations then when it comes to actually getting the ops guys on board? Like, what, what's, how does that conversation start? Um, it usually starts for us as the output of like, we're starting to have teams do an agile methodology. So scrum, Kanban, something like that. And they're delivering all this software and it's, it's piling up. So I usually start with the, the fuzzy bunny factory analogy that you're making all these fuzzy bunnies and just sticking them on a shelf and, you're not making any money as long as the fuzzy bunny isn't going to cute children. So <laughs> <laughs> I love it. <laughs> so, but that's the usual thing is you've got a build waiting to be deployed and then you have another build and another build until you have, until there's several builds behind. It's like, well, which one should we work on now? Right. Or, or even like longer term, like you've done a, a two week development sprint and you have, theoretically functional software that you can ship and now you've done two or three of those so you have six weeks worth of great functional software and it's just not going anywhere because it's like well we'll get you on a deployment schedule two months down the road right and those right. those first rounds of builds some may work some may completely blow up it's they're, they're the builds are a lot different after six weeks than they are when you first start huh oh yeah yeah, and it, it, it's really interesting watching teams evolve because usually we'll we'll start with continuous integration for a development team and then it's like, okay, yay, my code's compiling and then they'll put unit tests or some some really quick feedback in there and then they'll add maybe like, you know, static code analysis or something to get some more quality checks and all of a sudden they're like, okay, we have great bits and now we're going to go use Visual Studio to go push this to production. It's like, wait, no. Why are you doing that? Like you have this perfectly well tested stuff sitting over there. Use that. And then, I mean, I've been, I'll put my IT hat on for this. Not all IT shops are like this. Oh yeah. Some of us can keep up and are waiting for developers, but I've definitely seen the backlog pile up, especially at that rate at that every, when you get into a cadence of two week, three week, four week deliveries, like for a major deployment, it's easy to take longer than that to really be ready, really get it up and running. Yeah, it's it's really easy to take take a decent amount of time to be up and running. And then the the other thing is you start getting it out there and then nobody's getting any feedback on it or really trying to, to put the ops head on and analyze what the application's doing. So then it goes boom and the default response is, well, I'll just reboot the server and it'll be fine. And you know, you do that for six months and somebody's gonna start asking, Well, why are we just rebooting this all the time? <laughs> So I and I've I've talked about this before on DevOps talks too. Just having people understand what operations is doing every day, what's eating up their time, often you can find that there's a bunch of low hanging fruit things you can actually improve. Oh, absolutely. Well, and, and even on the development side, like the the most common question I get is, well, I have a bunch of this stuff running, and I want to test it all, and I go and start looking through it, and you know, 60 to 70% are all all unit tests, pretty isolated. And then all of a sudden I get to the point where somebody has like, you know, all this stuff that's accessing a database or calling to all these services. And it's like, those really aren't unit tests. And they're like, well, it runs in, you know, 
X unit and unit MS tests, so they must be unit tests, right? <laughs> if I run it in something called unit, it must be a unit <laughs> test. <laughs> so that's that's where I've been trying to start helping people realize that there's fun interplay between like continuous deployment and continuous integration where you kind of have steps where you build and run all those initial fast running isolated unit tests, use a deployment tool to push it out into a development type of environment, or at least a testing kind of environment where you can run all your automated tests and then effectively kick back into the cycle and say, okay, now run all those tests again and let me know whether it all worked. Huh? Yeah. You know, these terms are being mishmashed now. Continuous integration, to continuous deployment, to continuous delivery. Do you rationalize them? Do you, is that something you write on a whiteboard and say, what are the difference between these? Yeah. In fact, I, I have a little grid that I usually show in a presentation that um, I think the, the original idea came from somebody at Etsy. But um, it basically, I, I call it the continuous continuum. And... It starts with continuous integration, um, talks about how that's, you know, initial build and test and that, you know, I have a column like who kicks it off and, and I put really like no one on that one because it should be like every time you check in a line of code, that's being run. And then the next level down for continuous deployment and then that's managing the release of the application out to a target environment, whether that be test, dev, production. And my my joke there is anyone we we actually got the CEO of our company to release one of our pieces of software because we had it fully automated down to a button click, um, which was really kind of entertaining just because I could say that you know use it in everything, hence that you know hey look we can actually do this, um, and then continuous delivery as being a business choice and trying to separate the idea of deployments in and of themselves from new features actually being released to customers. And that's where you still get into the, the unicorn space of, you know, uh, you know, feature toggles and, and canary servers and all that kind of stuff. And you consider it a unicorn space or I think the, or they call it the aspirational goals that, that you're just steadily slipping features out. You don't have big bang releases anymore. Right. Um, I I guess unicorn space is, is probably being it. Gene Kim keeps using that word a lot from, uh, you know, just the idea of these, you know, the Googles, the Etsy's of the world that have all figured this out. Um, I think it's becoming more and more mainstream. And as we tackle problems further up the pipeline, then people are now trying to work hard at solving those problems and make them easier to tackle. But And, and I appreciate you, you two things you said there, right? One is business decision, that, that this is a different way of thinking about your business if you're not having big version drops. But it's also a fairly big cultural change, too, because now fundamentally, if you're slipstreaming features in and you're giving a dashboard to operations to turn those features off and on, you are asking operations to be part of the testing process in production. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and, and that's really significant because especially when I see teams start with things like feature toggles in development, um, the common response is like, oh, yeah, we've got a database with a table in here that lists all of our toggles, and we just go in and run a SQL update, and the thing turns on. And I say, okay, and how does operations know that you turned that on? They're yeah. like, eh, we, we sometimes tell them after the fact, or they come huh. and complain yeah, that They usually find out when the tech support calls come screaming in. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, that's that's culturally not the right thing, but it, it, and I think it's an important part about 
just a sort of understanding of some of these things are not decisions made by developers anymore. It has to be a bigger conversation than that. Yeah. It's, it's interesting because it almost becomes a combined discussion at some point. Like you need, you need your operations people to really know, know what your app's trying to do and what's, what's next with it so that they can understand how to give you the right kind of feedback for stuff. Right. Hey, I'd like to uh, take this opportunity to tell you that Coder Camps is changing the way people learn .NET and JavaScript. If you've been learning .NET on your own, these guys can get you the skills that you need to get hired in just nine weeks. They've been around for over a year now, and the results are amazing. Everyone who's graduated has been hired within 90 days, and now they've made it even better by letting students attend camp online. Check them out at CoderCamps.com. And, uh, you know, you probably notice I'm not talking too much because this is Richard's area of expertise. But if I, if I hear any, uh, you know, if I hear anybody out there screaming at me, you know what I'm saying? I'll jump yep. in. In the end, we are just representing the audience, right? Yep. So if that question leaps at you, it's always a good time to jump. Sure will. Forward. And I, and I want to sort of nail that in the spectrum. Where, where do you focus your time now, Daniel? Are you, are you actually getting into, changing the organization with continuous delivery or are you still sticking with like the fast deployment model? Um, I think, I think I'm moving more towards organizations with continuous delivery because basically when, when teams start out, a lot of them have solved like the initial continuous integration problems or have already started with a a deployment tool and then they want to get to the next level. So it's like, all right, we can, we, the tool's pretty simple. We were able to release our web application in a couple of steps you know, now I want to do database upgrades, or now I want to figure out how to roll stuff in and out of a load balancer and set up the infrastructure, or I have one client right now that's really aggressive and wants to burn all their virtual machines to the ground pretty much every time they do a major release and build everything from nothing. Good Lord. So in a a cloud world, that's not that weird, because basically what you're really saying is build a whole new set of VMs that are the new app, and then switch over to it. Yep. And tear the old ones down because you don't need them anymore. Mm-hmm. Which makes it sound a lot less threatening than burn the whole place to the ground. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, that's very true. Where it really gets interesting, though, is then how you make the the infrastructure automation kind of interact. Because I think that's what, what scares a lot of the IT folks is that, you know, when you start getting into the, the Puppet and Chef and DSC, Desire State Configuration World for PowerShell, um, you know, IT people look at it and say, well, that's that's what developers do. Why do I have to do that? Interesting. Because um, hmm. it, it starts looking a lot like code and it, it, you know, frankly, it is code to a big extent and you've got to source control it and you've got to test it. And, um, you know, it's it's interesting to see how all that's evolving. All too. right. So here's a question for you. Every time we get DevOpsy on the show, which is often and good, um, Chef and Puppet come up. And I'm not so sure that we've actually given them their proper explanations before. Um, real high level, they're they're basically tools that help you describe how an operating system is configured and set up. So below your application, you've got IS.NET, message queuing, SQL Server, you know, you name it, all the way down to Windows registry keys that you need configured, um, and also non-Windows OSs. And these tools basically help you describe um, in a, in a basically a dis- descriptive type of format or descriptor type of format how the whole operating system is configured. 
Okay, so that you can recreate that operating system state at another time? Yep, or yep. or create more of yourself. Like if you want to elastically scale and you need another box, it has to look identical to the previous one. Got it. Well, and you know, the way I've heard it described, which I really enjoy, is turning your Word document into code. That's pretty cool. Oh, that's great. Right? Because we all have that Word document about, okay, when you want to deploy the app, go over here and twiddle this knob, and then change this over here, and then restart this. Like, it's all these steps you have to follow, and it's usually wrong, And but you, you hack your way through it every time you do deployment. The idea that you'd actually have it in a digital form so that it's what actually executes to do the configuration means it's right. You guys yep. are primarily talking about web apps here, right? I mean, do do these tools and and uh, what we're talking about apply to any kind of app? They can apply to a whole uh, lot of different kinds of apps. I mean, you can do it with Windows services. Um, I've done it with ClickOnce type applications before. Uh, it's a little bit more difficult to do with installed apps because you don't have complete control over a client's system. Sure. But almost every other type of app, you can pretty much deploy this way. Well, and a click once app really doesn't need a whole lot on the server. It just needs a place to put files, right? Yeah, sort of. Um, click once falls into a very interesting category because of the way they sign everything for security purposes. That's true. So you yeah. have to play some really interesting tricks if your intent is to kind of lay down the same template and twiddle with all the settings. Either that or you don't sign it and you just say, yeah, I know it says don't trust me, but go ahead. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> That's the easy way to do it. That is the easy way. But uh, yeah, I'm with you that the problem is keeping the signature up. The other challenge here is, which can be solved with careful programming, is can you live with multiple versions of the client out in the world? Because you're going to have to. Oh, yeah. So just, you know, where I've dealt with this is in very large distributed systems where we, we end up on a service bus. So there's a bunch of different services and there's a bunch of different clients. And you can never be sure when someone's going to upgrade. So, how you know, you can block click once from upgrading. You can't guarantee someone's going to have the new client. So you've got to build the software to be able to tolerate the old client. So speaking of tricky installations, uh, Dan, what what do you think your most challenging environment was? Um, I think it was an application that we were doing for a, a gas pipeline company where the they were trying to set something up for their field service users to log in, but there was no reliability as to when those users would be logged in or how long they would be offline. And then... On the back end, they were integrating three really, really old legacy systems that basically are what you use when you call um, 411 or you know any of the diggers hotline type of systems. Huh. Um, and so it's this old, horrible system that writes out these gigantic files. And so they needed this really fun way of like basically writing files into a queue to update the system and get data out of it. And then needed to somehow distribute this out to their field users who are occasionally connected. So, yikes. Really fun fun infrastructure built into that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, your idea of fun. <laughs> I bet well, it was I, fun when it worked. It it was and the interesting part is, you know, I I've done a lot of work with Microsoft patterns and practices over the years and and one of the things that came out of it was their um, CQRS, which is command query response segregation principles. So the idea of using 
um, a service bus to kind of start writing things and then snapshot views of it and let the service bus and like little workers on the back end handle all the processing. And it's amazing how well that works in either low or flaky bandwidth scenarios or high volume. Um, it's really responsive and it, it gets the right data out even if it takes a little while. That's cool, right? I mean, and it comes down to, yeah, there are coding patterns here we can use that will be tolerant of this sort of thing. Yeah, the the Rube Goldberg pattern. <laughs> <laughs> and, and and Carl, it's interesting you mentioned that because it, it seems like the Rube Goldberg pattern and the real challenge with that is actually getting diagnostics and information around it because it's so distributed that building, like that's one of our biggest challenges was like, how did we give um, people diagnostic information? Yeah. Yeah, know when you're actually, it, it's all great when it works and when it doesn't work, you're like, ah, <laughs> do you know how to figure out what, what, where it got to, what the problem is? Reminds me of my phrase, everything's easy when you have all the answers. Exactly. Nice. Hey, Richard. Yeah, buddy. You know what time it is? Well, it must be that happy time again. You got it. It's time to write a PowerShell script to burn this discussion to the ground and build a three-ring circus in its place. Oh, uh, nice. Yeah. That's act- With a Rube Goldberg pattern binding the rings together. Yeah. When the ball rolls into the bathtub down and the man jumps into the cup and... Uh, you remember Mousetrap? Yep, I remember. What a great game. They always lose one piece so that the trap I know, I know. <laughs> Especially if you have children. <laughs> Actually, it's time to give away a Syncfusion Essential Studio to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. But before I tell you who won today, say goodbye to boring enterprise apps. Sync Bye. Bye-bye. Syncfusion <laughs> Essential Studio offers more than 500 controls to help you build stunning applications. Just released an amazing set of ASP.NET controls, 100% powered by JavaScript. Download a free trial at SyncFusion.com today. SyncFusion's also published over 40 completely free ebooks on topics ranging from Hadoop to assembly. Each book written by a leading expert contains 100 pages of wholesome technical content with absolutely no fluff. Head to SyncFusion.com slash ebooks to get your copy now. All right, buddy. Who's our winner? Today's winner, Richard, is Nitin Shenoy. Congratulations, Nitin. Clap a clap for you. Clap a clap. And Nitin just won the Syncfusion Essential Studio. That's a whole lot of awesome from Syncfusion in one box. And if you don't know what we're talking about here, go to .netrocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world. Every show, we give away great stuff from our sponsors. And every December, we give away $5,000 worth of technology to one lucky member of the fan club. But you got to join to win. And uh, we like to ask our guest, Dan... If you had $5,000 to spend on technology right now, what would you buy? So I have a hobby that I've fallen out of for a number of years but want to get back into, which is model railroading. Hmm. And Uh there's a lot of technology you can buy for that for five grand. In fact, you can burn through it pretty quick. Yes, you can. Oh, yes. That's so much. Your budget is too low. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, what scale do you prefer? First, you need a great big building to put it in. Yes, <laughs> exactly. My basement is not big enough. Yeah. But are you, are you an HO guy or yeah, like the big stuff? I'm an HO guy. Um, I I do a little logging railroad out in the Pacific Northwest. Um, nice. It's it's really kind of neat. And my my goal has been to try to like automate the entire thing so I can pre-build scripts and just watch my railroad run, which probably takes some of the fun out of it. But 
Like it's always been fun just to try to get to that point, but I think I priced it out and I was at five grand in just electronics to be able to pull that off. Wow. Yeah. See, this is where the, the geek part would, you know, of course there's rip model railroad geeks, but the electronics geekery, like you could really go nuts with some of this stuff. Yeah, oh, yeah, I knew a guy who had, who built a house with model railroad tunnels and, and elevators all over the house. So he could, you know, it would run around the walls. Yeah, that was just oh, insane. Cool. It was like Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. You remember the little train used to go? Never mind. Oh, yeah. Why <laughs> <laughs> did I remember that? Jeez. You just pulled that one out of nowhere, yeah. huh? Reliving my childhood. I'm looking at the RR Concept Station Master controller, and and it, and it does that whole you know make the train slow down properly, like gradual deceleration and gradual acceleration, like and you could program all that behavior in. Like you you these are fun toys, and you could spend a lot of money on mm-hmm. them. Yeah, and then the nice part is that it comes on like a big addressable bus, so you can connect things you know more than just trains you can do switches and turnouts you can do animations and buildings and basically set it all up so you can have full control over pretty much anything on the layout put cameras on the engine in the caboose so That's broadcast wi-fi <laughs> if you want to see what's going on point of view That's awesome. the point of view right well, and a controller's about a hundred bucks, and sensors are ten dollars each, and you know, you just start pulling all this stuff together. Ah, five grand is gone. That's oh right. yeah. <laughs> well, and the base system is like eight or nine hundred dollars just to begin with, and that right just to get the initial rig up and going. Yeah, and it somewhere in there you got to buy some trains. Exactly. You know who uh, celebrity that's really into model railroading is Neil Young. Did you know really? that? Yeah, I, did, not know, I did not know that. I saw you might be able to find it on YouTube, but I I saw a documentary about him. He has a child with special needs and built a building with you know like a took a barn sized building and built a a model railroad system in it. And you know over the years, a huge one. Yeah, I don't know where I saw that on TV somewhere. Maybe twenty years ago, even. That's yeah. really interesting. Yeah. All right, you. Uh, Daniel, I think it's the first time anyone's ever mentioned railroading stuff, and it's one of those ones where it's like, okay, you've blown the five grand out. This is not a lack of creativity. It's like, you need a bigger budget. And I uh-huh. think you may be the first one who's who's uh, gone to model railroading here. Yeah. Oh. Absolutely. That's neat. But back to the subject at hand, I th- can, should we talk some tools here? What are you using to get to, at least to a continuous deployment piece? Because I think we've made it pretty clear that the difference between continuous deployment and continuous delivery is cultural, not technological. Right. From a tooling standpoint, like from a a build side, I think I've used pretty much every CI server on the market at some point in time. Um, Actually, I think was I was a regular contributor onto CruiseControl.net back in the day, and then decided that it was best left to people who actually had full time jobs and pay for it to build better tools. So um, I use TFS Build, um, Team City, Jenkins, Hudson, um, pretty much all those tools to, to do the build part. Um, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm kind of opinionated with, with deployment, so I really like Octopus Deploy. Mm-hmm. Um, You're not the first to say that, sir. Yep. Um, I think they've really done a good job with the space. I mean, I've, I've been using and working with Paul on pieces of it. So it's been been a lot of fun to watch that tool evolve and i I think they've really kind of got the right direction going with 
with how a tool like that should work from a deployment standpoint. And it, I mean, there's obviously folks that have rolled their own, but is it worth it? I run into a lot of companies that have rolled their own. And, and the problem that I see is the space keeps evolving. And, you know, you've had guests recently on ASP.NET VNX. And I think that's going to change some deployment models. And, you know, the obviously the operating systems keeps changing. And the thing I keep telling people is, are you really willing to invest all that development cost to fix a problem that somebody's already solved? Mm-hmm. Right. And you're right. It's not that it works. It, it, it's as soon as you hold back from deploying a new version of other major tools because the framework you've built can't handle it, that you've really, you know, you've made a mistake. Right. That That is the whammy. But that's the Jenkins-Hudson thing is really interesting. I have not used either one, but I, I watched in awe at the battle. Yeah, it's... It's something that I, I didn't follow very closely. Um, I still think they're they're great tools. I do think they're still a little bit more focused on the the Java and and open source kind of stack versus the .NET side. Um, but I think that they're definitely a compelling tool, especially if you're looking for for something free or open source to use. I guess that's all. You know, this is to remind you of the early days of .NET. All of the cool tools. The, to help with your DevOps processes are coming from the open source community and you have to sort of figure out, can I make this work in a .NET world? Oh, yeah. yeah it reminds me of, of unit testing and, and heck, just uh, just continuous integration. You remember, continuous integration 2005 was like duct tape and bailing wire and, open, and migrated open source. And a code. lot of prayer. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it sure the has come thing- a long way. The other space I think is is evolving pretty rapidly is like people's concept of acceptance testing. So the idea of getting your users actually involved and and writing requirements in a way that you ultimately can turn into code and prove to them is working, I think is is really coming along. And actually looping the customer in to see a beta version on a schedule? Yeah, exactly. So what we've seen is there's a lot of interaction up front by, you know, the business or your product owner or somebody who's who's helping you set up requirements. Um, and they're helping walk the customer through scenarios of how they might work with the new feature. And the interesting part is that it leads to some really interesting conversations about like, well, what about or, you know, then what type scenarios? So, you know, I'm on the home screen. OK, then what? Well, I'm going to click this. OK, then what? And and you're kind of walking the user through what they would like as an ideal experience without it even existing. And right. then um, on the back end, you can create kind of that that top layer of, of coded UI or automation-driven tests to basically then repeat that and walk the user back through the process and show them, you know, how it's working, but in an automated fashion or verify that it's working in an automated fashion. Interesting. And and I guess that's gonna be an interesting way to just build up a, new, a bigger suite of tests. Oh yeah, and and to be clear, like this is not like the the biggest. You know, if you think of testing as a pyramid, like this needs to be like the top of the pyramid versus the bottom of the pyramid. Because I've I've seen what we call the ice cream cone, where that's the the heaviest layer, and it usually leads to some pretty bad disasters. Right. So. The tooling around testing seems to be the linchpin here. If you really want to get to continuous delivery is how do you test fast enough and coherently enough to really have confidence you can deploy the software? Oh, yeah. 
Yeah, and, and the thing is there's always multiple layers because you can do unit tests and that will make sure that your system works in isolation. But then right. you're going to want integration tests to test that all the subsystems are talking together or you're talking to the database. And then you're going to want those end-to-end you know, Selenium or Coded UI type tests on the top layer to like pretend they're the user and at least get all those basic cases done. Right, exercise the UI from the UI layer all the way back. Yep. The, the problem I have when you do those kinds of tests is what data are you acting on? Because you obviously can't act against the production data or you'd be creating sales, essentially. But demo data is never good enough. Like, well, how do you solve that problem? So one of the things that we've started doing with the continuous deployment level is not only deploying the database, but effectively automating the data uh, stage out slash reset. So um, literally making part of your development process, staging all the right data to run these tests, and then effectively letting letting the deployment tool wipe the environment clean and start over and lay down all the data again every time it deploys it. So it makes deployments take a little bit longer, but the nice part is that every time you're done with a deployment, your environment is effectively completely reset. Including your data itself. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Can you do this in a... If you're, you know, I'm dealing with e-commerce sites that literally not a minute goes by, they're not doing a transaction. In some cases, not a second go by, they're not doing a transaction. So how do you, you know, I don't know if you're at that kind of velocity, but how do you do that? Yeah, I mean, right now we're not doing that kind of model for like a production environment that's for right. your lower environments. Um, when you get to production, then you almost have to do that, but just at a subset of data that's almost hidden. So your your dummy user or your dummy account, and then kind of keep that away from the rest of the system. So you still have the problems of like load testing and, and testing at scale, but at least with that model, if, if you can partition it away from the rest of the system, then you always have that one consistent set of data in the background to use. And I, and I do appreciate the idea that I want to work I do want to test on real data. I just don't want to screw up my real data in the process. Right. And I hate to throw a monkey wrench into that thing of that kind of velocity because there's plenty of systems that aren't that busy where you could take a snapshot of the data, do all your tests, roll it back, and then roll it forward. And I love the idea of rebuilding the database each time because it, it, I always have a fear of anything that hasn't been rebuilt in months. Although then you don't get those strange errors that come from, you know, possibly corruption and, you know, uh, transactions that may have slipped through or bad data that may have gotten in there and messed things up in the code, right? And it's good to have some nasty data to deal with, too, not just nice, clean data. That's true. Yeah, I think it's still a really hard problem to solve in this space that that nobody's really got the perfect answer for. I think it's one of those still where everybody's just taking a best a best approach to it and incrementally taking learnings from where they've you know fallen down before and trying to figure out a new way to improve that that part of the process. I do deeply appreciate the I want to incorporate the database and the data schema as part of this overall process. I don't want to exclude them. And and that's the part that usually freaks out a lot of the the DBAs when we start talking to them is that oh for sure they they don't like the idea of a tool knowing what your database should look like and then making changes to it to to bring it up to speed right well I mean I didn't like that either I started with the Microsoft data tools okay and it and it would generate the scripts for me and make the changes 
and 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 it just filled me with dread. But what I ended up doing was a whole bunch of trials to just to see does will this thing damage my data? And the answer came up no. When you had to do something like drop a column to fit the schema, it would either f- fail or flag it anytime that was any risk of the data at all. Oh yeah. Yeah, they definitely did a good job at making sure that it doesn't do evil stuff automatically without you basically forcing it to do that. What uh, do you use the Microsoft Data Tools for that, or or one of the others? Um, I've used the the Microsoft Data Tools. Um, I've I've seen. I haven't done a lot of work with the Redgate tooling. Mm-hmm. Um, Single compare. Yeah, um, I've also had a decent amount of success with people using the NND Framework migration stuff. That actually seems to work pretty well for a lot of people. Oh, which people seem to forget that that exists a lot of times. Like they use it for development environments or or kind of for that final production push, but it works really well when you're doing like continuous deployment stuff as well. Interesting. I did not know about this. All this time we've talked about any framework. We never talk about migrations. Yeah, it's it's you can enable migrations and then every time you make a database upgrade, it basically forces you to type a little PowerShell command to add the migration. And when it does, it it basically writes a little codified script in your DLL about how to make the changes. And then there's a tool hidden inside of the um, NuGet package that you use that basically is a migrator executable that helps do the upgrade. Nice. So, yeah, bottom line here is that databases can be part of the overall build process. Oh, yeah. And should be. I mean, that, that starts as a cultural conversation that we want everything involved with the app to be part of this, uh, to be part of the process. And then you have to start building processes around it. And ultimately, then the tools make sense. Uh, I, I find, and I don't know if you've run into this, there are DBAs out there to this day who believe that their asset, their contribution to the process is the change script. Yeah, very much so. And, and that's a problem because change scripts can be generated. Yeah. And and there's ways to review them if you think about the tooling. Like one thing we did with Octopus is run the SQL Server data tools once to spit out what it's going to change. And mm-hmm. then for before the DBAs got comfortable with it, we put in a manual intervention step so they could review that. And then all they had to hit was approve. And then it would basically run it again and actually do it that time. Um, and after about six months of that, we were able to drop the first two steps and just let the tool do its job all the time because then they got trustful of what it was doing. Yeah, I, I had a I had a DBA that I was working with who we wanted to use the data tools and I ended up building a bot that would just spit out the script every time we did the run and send it to him for approval. And once <laughs> he got, you know, six a day, his enthusiasm started to wane. <laughs> hey, uh, before we go any further, let me tell you guys that if you're an experienced developer or a project manager looking for a change of pace, consider working with me and my world-class team at App V Next, building the next generation Internet of Things and jaw-dropping newy apps. Are you in? Interested anyway? Check out appvnext.com, then go ahead and send me your resume. Continue, boys. What about the other side of this? Like, Are you doing the dashboard thing where you have features that are going off into the wild that the ops is turning off and on? And not that I think that that's hard. The hard part for me is how do you instrument it to know whether it should be off or on? Yeah, the... So the tricky part, once once we were doing the, that's where a lot of the automated acceptance testing kind of came in, was that you can then kind of read, 
get your system to float through its own toggling cycles. So you could basically deploy to one environment with certain ones turned on and another one that turns off and then rerun the tests and get the data back. Um, the, the problem that we saw a lot was that it was difficult to kind of join the acceptance requirements back to the automation. So like if, if I was coding and, you know, using Coder DUI or Selenium to write my tests, um, trying to join that to the acceptance test was really difficult. Um, so I actually developed an open source project called SpecBind um, to help kind of bridge that gap and, and turn your, your coding experience into a much more happy place. Um, in between. So you can use um, something like SpecFlow to write write your acceptance tests. And then with a very simple page model, you can bridge all the automation without having to write hundreds of lines of Selenium or Coded UI code. So a SpecFlow fan, we have talked about this on the show before. Sure have. Yeah, it's it's kind of a, I, I really like it as a tool just because it's it prints out easy to read stuff. Um, it helps you kind of know what, what the scenario is supposed to be doing. Um, it gives you a really clean kind of output that works into a continuous integration environment. And then the coding model is already really simple. Um, but when I started using it for, for UI automation, I found that I was doing the same, same patterns over and over and over again. And it's like, you know, there has to be an easier way if you just write this little bridge in between to do the work. And that's spec bind. Yep. So is this your project? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Live it in GitHub, I presume? Yep, it's at uh, www.specbind.net, um, but it's backed by a GitHub project. Awesome. Nice. Yeah. So just make it that much easier to put these pieces together. Yeah. And I, I really put a lot of effort into the wiki on this thing so that it's not one of those like, here's here's a readme.md and go figure the rest out type of thing. Yeah. That seems to be par for the course, unfortunately. Well, and it, yeah. We, uh, over and over again, we see successful GitHub projects. I'm thinking of stuff like MVVM Cross, for example, where it wasn't until there were videos and, and, and better samples to help people really figure out the right way to use these things that they became as successful as it could. Well, be. and that's usually the case. I mean, as I was saying, you go to GitHub, you look at the documentation tab. It's never, ever filled out. Yeah. You know, you, no, no, no. You just read the comments. Oh, yeah. It'll be yeah. okay. As long as you've been involved since the very beginning, this will all make sense right, to you. Exactly. <laughs> it's like, really oh, true. Yeah. When we're so close to things, we, we tend to not uh, forget that other people don't have that knowledge. Yeah. I think the other big part yeah. is people think that just because you can access the code, you can kind of figure it out. And it's like, I, I don't want to go waiting through 300 source code files to try to figure out what this thing is actually doing. Mm. Yeah, that's, that's true. Uh, I was also thinking hard about production level instrumentation like once you have a dashboard running that it's actually going to be in the wild uh and and again i deal deal with a lot of velocity issues so we're building a high load feature we know it's a high load feature we don't know how many more instances we're going to need how much bigger the system needs to be to run this thing so we're literally using production to test this for scale bit by bit by bit and being able to allow the operations guys to watch the metrics. I don't know if you've ever dealt with this particular problem. Yeah, we we definitely have, and and one of the things, and not to 
to plug particular tools, but New Relic and Application Insights are two tools that do a really good job at this right now. Um, they kind of bridge the the operating system information, so memory, CPU, that kind of stuff. Um, they sort of dig upwards into your application on their own and and help figure out what your code's doing, um, and then also kind of relate that back to the user's end experience, so that you can kind of tie all those pieces together to create a pretty nice picture of what's going on. Yeah, I'm a new Relic fan. I've also used App Dynamics, and then there's there's preemptive analytics as well. I mean, all production level instrumentation solutions. Oh yeah, they're all good. I found that if you try to do it yourself, uh, you know, like I've done that before, just sort of roll my own data capturing. It's not enough to capture the data. You really have to know how to interpret it and look at it the right way. And that's what I find is really good about these third party tools. Yeah, and. And I think I've, I've seen people write their own, and I've seen some people spend a crazy amount of time and actually do it really well in the end. But the the feedback I always get on the outside is, yep, we spent about six months building this. It's awesome. It's going to be a pain the next time we have a new type of application we're going to roll out yeah. on top of it, and we wish we hadn't done it ourselves. Yep. <laughs> uh, and, and for me, it's... I'm dealing with customers who don't want to roll out a new feature and then face plant. Right. Right. They want to know what's the new load going to look like. And the way, the way we've done it is to run the future in production without showing the customer. it. So it's, it's hidden behind the scenes. So we know exactly what the load was in advance so that we can gear up and provision properly before we reveal. And I think a, a lot of the development that, that ends up wandering into an interesting development space that I think there's still a lot of, of cool things that can be done in it, which is like more of the feature toggles and canary servers. And it's a it's a space where just doing a little bit of poking around on NuGet and stuff, like people haven't really done a lot of work around a good feature toggling framework yet. Right. And you've said Canary Server a couple of times. Do you want to define it? Sure. Um, canary Server kind of goes back to the, the 1800s and coal you know, coal mines where you had a you brought a canary into the coal mine with you, and if the canary died, there were horrible gases, and you needed to run out quickly. Um, the idea with a, a server farm is that you basically deploy out to one or two servers, um, run a lot of your testing on those servers. If those servers died, you haven't impacted your whole production environment, but um, if they work, then they're a good sign that you can go and roll it out to the rest of them. Right. So it's sort of staged rollout of multiple of multiple instances so that you can watch the trouble, the new feature first, rather than looking at all of them. You don't have to watch the one. Yeah. And then uh, I and when I've tipped that over, when it's gone wrong, I've just pulled that machine from the low balancing pool. Like, okay, you're out. <laughs> Everybody, yeah. out, of you, the pool. out of the pool. <laughs> <laughs> you're done. Bye bye. <laughs> And when you do that, that, you know, that this is where it's fun with like preemptive analytics was it would barf errors into TFS. So we'd, we'd light up the canary server. It would start taking load. It would fail horribly. A bunch of errors would be fired at TFS. Then we'd cut it out of the load, the load test. And the dev guys would know right away that what we'd done, right? Cause they'd see all these new orc items coming bang, 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 bang. And then it would stop. It's like, okay, I guess we failed. Okay. <laughs> yeah, but I think we had to go back and look at that again. I don't. I think we did something wrong there. Yep. <laughs> but you know, I also like the dynamic there that operations is in control. Like they know what's going on in production. They're able to see what's going on. They're part of that process, 
And, you know, the real question is, are, what customers are you annoying and how are you annoying them? Yeah, exactly. And I, I you know, think- when you use your customers for testing, that also can be a problem. Yeah, sure is. So in one of, one of the sites we were dealing with, we had customers that were willing to be part of the beta test, and we gave them a special deal. It's a strange loop. And and customers that weren't. It's like, nope, we can't take any risks. We're willing to wait for the new features for that, them to come later to us. We don't want any of that. Right. And so, you know, we were able to sort them out that way. That's a good way to sort them. Yeah, it's hard on a, on a straight-up e-commerce site. But when you have something where you have customers that are demanding the new features, like put your money where your mouth is then and be part of the process. Dan, is there anything that we missed today? No, I think we covered a lot of stuff. I think you guys covered a lot of stuff. But uh, I would like to thank you very much on behalf of all the listeners for enlightening us. It's been great. Great. Thank you both. Dan Peasons, ladies and gentlemen. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Plop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a transmitter band by the FCC.